If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 21. Uh, that's where we're going to sort of plant ourselves here uh, this morning as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John, uh, a journey that is rapidly coming to a close. We'll, we'll be in John 21 today. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. We actually just have two more weeks here in the Gospel of John. We've been in it for uh, just over a year, and so we'll, uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, we are jumping after this into the uh, book of Habakkuk, which is a, which they call a minor prophet, which just means it's a short one. Uh, it doesn't mean they're less important, it means there's a lesser word count, all right? That's, that's all it means. So if you want to go ahead and read in advance, you can. We'll be, we'll be in Habakkuk for about six weeks, and, and then, we'll, then we're going to surprise you after that, all right? In our, in our passage this morning, we're going to surprise us too, by the way. We're not quite sure where we're going after that, but we're going to jump into Habakkuk and, and, see, and see where it goes from there. Our passage this morning is going to pick up right where we left off last week. As we, uh, as we saw the resurrected Jesus in, in true body, uh, living and breathing, walking around, eating and, and drinking and doing all the things that, that a person would do, as we saw him engage in some very personal moments, uh, some very, like, very personal moments. We saw that with Mary, uh, we saw that with Thomas, and we saw how in his resurrection, Jesus, how he moves toward people, like how he engages with people, even when they're in the low places. Like he comes to them in their grief. He comes to them in their angst. He comes to them in their sorrow. He comes into the, he comes into the valley of the shadow of death, right? And he shows us, he proves to us, he proves to his people that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so while we might still be living in a good Friday world, the reality is, as people of the living God, as children of the living God, we are Easter people, so we celebrate the resurrection here every single week. So I invite you now to stand with me, if you are willing and able, as we turn to God's Word together. Uh, we're walking into this together today, and, 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 and I mean that. One of the reasons that we stand together for the, re- for the reading of God's Word is because we're all under His authority. It's not one person here with more authority than anybody else. We believe in a kingdom of priests in the church. This is a calling that I've received to stand here in front of you, but there's nothing more important about the person doing the reading. It's We're all under the authority of God's word. We're in this together. This is John 21. Listen with me as we hear from God himself speaking today. After this... Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would come this morning. I mean, we know that you're here and you definitely don't need our invitation into any place. You, this is, the world is yours and everything in it. And so Lord, what I, I guess what I'm praying is I pray that you'd make us aware of your presence. That in all the distractions of the world, all of the stuff that we brought in here with us from outside, Lord, I pray that in the next few moments that you would help us to just hear from you. To not be distracted, to not be conflicted, to not be, to not be anywhere else, but to just be here present with you. And Lord, I pray that you would that you would open our eyes, as has already been prayed, that you would open our blind eyes as only you can, that you would unstop our deaf ears this morning, that we could hear your voice calling to us from the shore. That you would awaken our souls this morning, we might draw near to you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when we find the disciples in this passage, what we find is that they have gone back to the area around the, what, the, what he calls the Sea of Tiberias. It's the same thing as the Sea of Galilee. It's that same uh, body of water. They made that 80 or so mile trip from Jerusalem uh, up into the region of Galilee. And so what we see is that they've gone home. All right. They went back to their area, an area that they had grown up in, they're in an area that they had worked in, that an area that they had family in, and they're back in an area that they had left in order to follow Jesus. And, and they're back in their hometown, and, w- and one of the things we see there, something that could get lost in that, is that these men who have fled Jerusalem now, they fled, but they're not hiding. You see, they've gone back to to where they're known. They've actually gone to where people know them. They're, they're, they're back in that area. They're moving out of state so nobody can find them. They're, they're going back to, to what they know and to where they're known. It's like going to Cheers, right? Sometimes they got to know. You got to go where everybody knows your name. That's where they are. So not only do they know who they are, but everybody in town knows why they had left Galilee in the first place. They're going back to where everybody would know. Aren't you the guy who followed the guy who got himself killed? on a cross, you know, that, that's not a little thing. I know that's not written explicitly in the text, okay, but if you think about these people less as caricatures and more as real people, you understand that they're going back home, brought baggage with it. There's not many people eager to go back 
when they've been part of a failing enterprise. And that's the way the world would have seen it. What we need to understand is that in going home, they weren't going back as the same people. You see, they were carrying a faith with them. And what we find in this passage is what Kent Hughes calls a living parable. Parables are just a a way of teaching. That's what parables are. They're symbolic, sometimes allegorical. I've heard it said that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I don't know who said that first. I think everybody said it at some point. So I don't know who to give uh, credence to on that or credit to on that one. But somebody said it, and I think it's true. It's a story with a deeper purpose. At every single wedding that I have ever had the privilege of officiating, I've told the bride and the groom that they are for us an acted parable. That's what's happening in front of the congregation. They're an object lesson here on earth pointing us to a beautiful reality in the kingdom of God. And so here in this first section of chapter 21, the disciples for us are a kind of living parable. They're living the story that Jesus wants to teach to his church. They're living it out in real space and time. And the first thing that we see is that they are in it together. It's the church together. Look there at verse 1. I want you to see this. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of After this Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way. Look at this list. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And so what we should see when we see this list of people, these guys are the church. They're representing the church. They are the first Christians. They are the believers. And the first thing that we should notice here is that we see them gathered together. We see them living together as followers of Christ. And we should remember that according to the wisdom of the world, this is a pretty unimpressive list of people. And we can just go down the list. Look at this. One of the last things that we saw of Peter, the first one on the list, right? Simon Peter, the last thing that we really saw of him was his denial of the Lord. If you were just reading this straight through, if you're just going through the Gospel of John, the last thing you really heard of Peter is that he's the guy who denied Christ. And he's the first one on the list. Next on the list is Thomas, right? The one who had defiantly refused to believe the testimony of his closest friends. It's no mistake that John points those two out first on the list. Nathaniel, you remember Nathaniel? Nathaniel was the guy who had asked in John 1 if anything good could come out of Nazareth. That's what Nathaniel had asked. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So just to go 1, 2, 3 right here at the beginning, all right? 1, 2, 3. Here, you have the denying one, you have the defying one, and you have the elitist who thinks he's too good to be associated with, from, with somebody from that part of town. That's who you've got. That's the first people listed as the church here by name. Then you have the sons of Zebedee, the two brothers who had asked for positions of prominence in Mark 10, betraying their own pride and sense of self-advancement. And then did you notice the last two? I love those two. We don't even know who the other two disciples were, but we know that whoever they were, John didn't even think them important enough to name them. That's the church. That's the church. And we should be reminded that these are the type of people. These are the type of people that Jesus calls to himself. They aren't perfect people, all right? They are the ones who have failed. They've let people down. 
They're people who've been wounded. They have reason. This list of people, every single one of them, has reason to be embarrassed because of the life, because of the witness that they've given. But here they are together. James Montgomery Boyce reminds us that these are the ones who do Christian work, normal people. With all the failings that we are heir to, not fictitious characters of superhuman faith and fortitude. This is the church of Jesus Christ. We see it right here in John 21. He takes the poor in spirit, right? He takes those who mourn. He takes the meek. He takes those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He takes the merciful. He takes the pure in heart and the peacemakers. This is who he takes. He takes those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I mean, you could go through that list, and maybe we should just go back to Matthew 5 and work our way through the Beatitudes here. We don't have time to do that whole message this morning, too, although it is tempting. But that's who Jesus takes. He takes the ones that we, if we are honest, would leave off the list. He takes the undesirables. He takes the people nobody else wants, and he brings them together to accomplish his purpose. And that is good news for us, because that's who we are. We are a ragtag group of less thans who, when gathered together, become a testimony not of our strength and ingenuity, but of God's preserving power. This is the church together. It's you and it's me in all our weakness and all of our foolish pride with all of our doubts, with all of our plans and all of our schemes being made into something greater in the midst of a fight that we cannot win in a world in which we have no power to save. That's the church. This is us out on the sea, just like the disciples. In the chaos of the world where the wind is strong, the waves are high, and our chances of drowning seem uncomfortably high. That's what the sea stands for. It stands for the unformed, uncontrolled chaos of this life. If you read through scripture, that's what you find. The ocean represents this chaotic environment. It's uncontrollable. It represents the world and all of its turmoil. The sea is this uncontrollable place where just the slightest shift in wind or even temperature can result in a massive shift in the waves. You see, you see, the Bible isn't a story about some utopian world that we can't relate to. Jesus is not blind to the storm in which you find yourself today. We've seen that in the Gospel of John. It can go from calm and tranquil to stormy and ferocious in just a moment. And it's a lot like we see in our world today where we, none of us, are ever more than just a phone call away from everything that we know unraveling in front of us. There's an unpredictability about the sea that's not meant to be messed with. I will never forget one time when I was a younger man um, and we decided to take our little fishing boat uh, a few miles offshore to a reef where we were told there were good fishing. We were morons. I want to confess that in front of you right now. And so we left out early in the morning. We pulled out through the jetties at Merle's Inlet down near Garden City Beach, and we headed out into the open ocean, and a 
15-foot aluminum john boat. So if you're not from the south, that's what you use to go in a creek, not what you use to go three miles offshore. That's just not good practice. Like a john boat's what my dad gave me when I was 10 years old and said, just don't leave the cove. That's what a john boat is. It's a flat-bottom boat, not meant for the open water, and it's got a 15-horsepower motor on the back, right? And I thought I was awesome in this thing, braving out of the rocks while everybody who's a legit fisherman's looking at me going, this guy's going to die. <laughs> that one's not making it back. That's what they thought. So we left out early because it's calm in the morning. We cruise out there. Everything went perfectly. We get out to this reef. It's three miles out. You can still barely see the shore, but it's there. And so we, and uh, oh, no GPS, no nothing. Okay, just not a smart move. So we go out there, we catch all the fish you can imagine. We're having a blast out there catching fish, keeping stuff you're not supposed to keep, just having a great time because we were kids. And, and we were having so much fun that we didn't notice the sky change. Like You know this feeling, right? That everything is going well. Everything, we're running fast. We're in the middle of the race. It's like running a 400 meter and you get to about the 300th meter and you all of a sudden hit the wall. This is what happened to us. The hip of the wall came in. And so as the first raindrop hits in our boat that has no bilge system, the bilge system is to take out the plug and go fast. That's how you get the water out of the John boat. Some of you remember this. And then you put the plug back in. And and anybody in the boat with you who doesn't know that, they think you have certifiably lost your mind. And so we're coming back in three miles, and all we could do was find one wave and just ride it. Because if we got down in the bottom the water would come over the back. If we went too fast, the water would come over the front. It's the longest, most miserable journey in my entire life, and I will never do it again. If you're in this room and you're hearing this and you've never tried that, if you hear me and you try it, that's on you. You've been (laughs) warned. Okay. We got tossed all over the place. We came in soaking wet with my dad standing on the dock looking at me like, I'm going to kill you. You know, I feel that same sort of tension almost every day in my life. I feel the weight of doing God's work and living out the commission of Jesus Christ and yet constantly coming face to face with my own shortcomings. Maybe you can relate to that. You know, we talk about mission in the church. We talk about discipleship in the church. We talk about all these big ideas. We talk about being lights to the world and pointing people to Jesus. But the temptation in all of that so often is to try to do it in our own strength and wisdom, to try and do it in our own knowledge, just like my 15-year-old version of me driving out of the ocean like I knew what I was doing. Yeah, we do that a lot. In this living parable, we see the disciples fishing And we've said already that they represent the church together. They're in it together. But what I want us to see now is what I'm going to call the church engaged. Look back at verse 3. In verse 3, we see Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Did you hear that? 
So the temptation that we might face at this point, I want to confess this, the temptation that we might face at this point is to see the disciples as failing. To see the disciples as just abandoning their call and their mandate to serve as the heralds of the gospel. We'll ask, why aren't they out there preaching? They've already had time with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. What are they waiting for? Why are they out on a boat fishing? Even in the passage just before this, uh, we saw Jesus say, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So what are they doing back in a boat on the Sea of Tiberias? I'll confess, that was my first thought. It was a question of, of if they were just reverting back to the life that they had lived before they ever met this man called Jesus. And part of that critical spirit that I had in me comes from the fact that we tend to think, it is natural for us to to think of life and ministry as two distinct and separate categories. You see, we see our normal uh, day-to-day Whatever that looks like for you, whether that's kids, whether that's empty nest, whether that's whatever stage of life that you are in, we see our normal day-to-day, and then we see ministry, okay, kind of set apart from that, usually on Sunday mornings. And so we have our home, we have our family, we have our job, we have our friends, maybe even if you're lucky enough, you have a few hobbies at this point, and then somewhere in the midst of that, We have to find a specific time to schedule this very specific activity that we call ministry or that we call worship. And we fail to understand that for the follower of Jesus Christ, every day, every hour, every minute, every moment is meant to be worship. It's not something that we do. It's who we are. This is what Paul said. He said, we are, we are ambassadors for Christ. Do you remember that? God making his appeal through us. That's what he says. We are ambassadors for Christ. It's not that, it's not that our activity is Christ. It's that our identity is Christ. In our homes, at our schools, in our workplaces. The way he said it in the Old Testament, he says, when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, this is who you are. And we know that Peter came to understand this. He says in 1 Peter 13, this is what he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. See, that's the new life. He's caused us to be born again. Just like I didn't, inf- just like I had no impact on my actual physical birth, I have no actual impact on the new birth. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't do anything. They never have. Well, one guy did. He came back, but he wasn't dead anymore. We talked about that last week. Caused us to be born again, that's the new life, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, well, let's just be straight here. In order to have some concept of hope in general, you have to have some idea of what suffering is. It's that in in this perishing, defiled, and fading world we look forward in hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's what Peter says. It's seeing what's wrong and hoping for something that's not. And how does this hope manifest itself in the world? Peter says this. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So it's, it's not that they hear our arguments. That's not what it is. It's not that they submit to new legislation and agendas. You cannot legislate Christianity. You cannot legislate redemption. That's not how it works. It's that they see our lives and those lives point them to the king. In his book, Evangelism as Exiles, Elliot Clark says this. He says that hope for the Christian isn't just a confidence in a certain glorious future. It's hope in a present providence. You know what providence is? is God's sovereign work in, and above, and around all things. It's God controlling all things by his own will right now. It's that we trust not in what is to come only, but what is now. That wherever God has put us now, that he's put us there for a purpose. We need to have eyes to the future, but we certainly need to have eyes in the present. And so at this moment, providentially, according to God's good plan for them, the disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Tiberias. And in keeping with the nature of this living parable, their work of fishing represents the work that we were called to in the beginning when Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men, right. But they aren't catching any fish, are they? They're in the boat. They have the net, but the net's empty. And it's not that they weren't committed. They're committed. It says that they were out there at the night. That's when they went fishing. They went out all night, and now it's now, it's now morning. So they've been fishing all night, and they haven't caught anything. So it's not a commitment issue. That's, that's not the issue. They are committed. They've been at it all night. The issue is that they had caught no fish. We face the same temptation in the church today. It's so tempting to try to accomplish God's work in our own strength. We come up with plans. We come up with schemes. For years, we operated under, the, under the, what's been called the field of dreams vision, right? If you build it, they will come. And so we built bigger buildings with bigger playgrounds or nicer playgrounds and taller steeples. You can see it from the middle, from the middle of town. It's tall, who's got the taller steeple? I want to be able to see that thing from, from wherever I am in town so I'll know whenever I see it that, that God's at work as if a steeple communicates anything other than the fact that there is a church gathering there. In many ways, we have forgotten that it's in the ordinary parts of life that Jesus shows up. It's in the mundane pieces of the world that the world will truly see the faithfulness of God's people. We're in the boat. We're on the sea. We're working and toiling and laboring. But we're just not catching any fish. And that's where Jesus calls out to us from the shore. Look at that there in verse 4. Just I want you to hear this again. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, One word, no. That's exactly how you would answer if you had not caught a fish after being out there all night. It'd be a one-word answer. Children, do you have any fish? No. That's it. That's all you're getting from me at this point. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Don't you love this scene, man? They're in the boat. They're tired. They have failed miserably. And now some guy, remember at this point, they don't recognize it's Jesus. It's just some guy on the shore. So not only have you failed, now there's somebody there who's seen it. Don't you just love that when you accidentally have, have done something wrong and you've, you know, 
you look around and, and you're like, whew, and then you look that way and there's a guy standing there kind of, you have any fish? No, don't have any fish. People question why the disciples so readily listened to this stranger on the shore that they didn't recognize. But if you've ever been fishing, you know that if someone tells you where you can catch some fish, you go and you give it a try. And so they do that. They give it a try, and the catch is more than they can handle. There's too many fish in the net. We're told later in verse 11 that the net was full of large fish, 153 of them. And so we've, we've seen the church together. We've seen the church engaged. And what we see at this point in this passage is we see the church embraced. We see them embraced. It was, it was, it was the missionary Hudson Taylor who said, God's work done in God's power will never lack God's supply. And that's what we see demonstrated here. Whether it's looking out at the field and saying, man, the fields are white for harvest or, or pointing to the right side of the boat to find the net full of fish. What Jesus is showing here is that his disciples, he's showing them, that, he's showing them the truth that, that he had told them in John 15. He's saying, he's demonstrating for them the truth that he is the vine and they are the branches. And that apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And it makes you wonder if we believe that, if we believe that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and that apart from him, we can do nothing. It makes you wonder why we fail so often in prayer. why we fail so often in turning our lives over to the Lord in prayer and coming to Him and begging and pleading Him to lead and carry and guide and strengthen, to be our shield, to be our defender, to be our fortress. You see, if we truly understood the truth that apart from Him we can do nothing, we would understand the call to pray without ceasing. You know, in the Gospels, you may not know this. You can take my word for it if you think I'm trustworthy. In the Gospels, we never see the disciples catching any fish without the help of Jesus. You never see that. If we read with our eyes open, we see this constant reminder of our utter and complete dependence on Him. Jesus wants the disciples to know, and He wants us to know. He wants you and me to know that how He is carrying us in the present reminds us of how he carried us in the past and how we can trust him to carry us in the future. And then we see this embracing of the disciples who had, who had toiled so often in their own strength, who have, who have and continue to try to figure out everything on their own. We have seen him wash their feet. We saw that in John 13. He served them in the most menial of tasks, taking the lowest form that a servant can take. And here we see him serve in another way. We see him serve them breakfast. Look back at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. 
Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus re- was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So now you can see this scene, right? It's pretty. It, it really is. You imagine sunrise at the Sea of Galilee. I've never been there, but I've been sunrise at the Sea of Murray, and it's pretty, okay? They came up on the shore. Peter's already there. He's soaking wet, remember, right? He had put on his coat and jumped in the water. Didn't want to be naked when he got up there in front of Jesus. Made that hundred-yard swim to the shore. And what they find when they get there is that Jesus himself had made them breakfast. It happens so often. We choose to follow our own course. We choose to rest in our own strength and trust in our own wisdom. We choose, we choose earthly priorities. We choose the sensual over the spiritual. We choose the material over the merciful. We choose the convenient rather than the commanded, and we choose the created over the creator. It was John Calvin who said, we are, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. We talk about it with the kids. We can make an idol out of anything. If I believe for just a moment that if I have this thing, if I can just run faster, if I can just jump higher, if I can just own this one thing, then I will be complete. Then I'll be happy. We've turned it into an idol. We are all prone to this. And the beauty of the gospel is that even in all of that, it's God who chooses us. And when we spend all of our life choosing all the other things in the world and saying, I I think this one will do it. If I can just have a baby, then that will fulfill my life. If I can just find a man to have a baby, then that will fulfill my life. If I can just fill in the blank, I'll have it. We spend all of our lives choosing all of these things. And the beauty of the gospel is that even in that, God chooses us. It's God himself who washes our feet. It's God himself who calls us in in all the toil of our life on the sea and invites us up onto and into the order and peace of life with him on the shore. That's where Jesus is calling us. He allows us to toil. That's what Calvin said. He said, God permitted them to toil to no purpose that night, to no purpose. You hear that? There's something subtle about the way uh, Calvin was able to say such profound things. God permitted them to toil to no purpose during the night in order to prove the truth of the miracle. Jesus wants them and he wants us to see that we can trust him. He wants us to see that he has and he can and he will overcome. That he can carry us through. That he is waiting for us to rest in him. And that he has breakfast waiting for us. The disciples went back to what they knew, but Jesus called them home. It's the same call that he makes to us today. It's the same call. I don't know where you're headed. I don't. I don't know the direction of your life. I don't know what you've been through this week. I don't know what Monday has in store for you. And so I don't know that direction. Maybe you don't either. Maybe you have no idea where you're headed right now. You're in the boat, right? You've got the sail up. You're on the sea. But you don't know where to go. Listen, maybe Jesus is calling you out on the shore right now. I'm not asking for everybody to start walking forward or anything. We're not, I'm just telling you to ask yourself right now, if maybe right now you've tried to steer the boat on your own. 
You've tried to catch the fish on your own. You've tried to walk in your own strength. You've tried to provide out of your own source. Maybe Jesus is calling you from the shore. Maybe Jesus is calling you home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I confess to you my temptation to run to things that make me comfortable, to the areas of my life that I think I can control, that I think I can manipulate, that I think I can handle. My temptation is to hold tightly to those things. And God, I want you to break me of that. I know that's a dangerous prayer. I'm, I'm asking you to do something that I know that will make me very, very uncomfortable. I want you to break me of the idols of my heart. I want you to take away, I want you to strip away the things in my life right now that I think are good enough, strong enough, and able enough to hold me up on the storm of the sea. Just wipe the boat out from underneath me. And I pray that for these people, Lord. They didn't ask for that when they came in here. They had no idea that I was going to pray that you would just wreck their hearts a little bit this morning. That when we leave here, we would have eyes to see the idols in our hearts that we need to kill. That we need to let wash away with the tide. I don't know everybody's heart. I don't know everybody's baggage. I don't, I don't even know my heart, if I'm honest. And so I pray that you do what we can't. That you would cleanse us of those things. That you would help us to see your son standing on the shore in his resurrected glory, calling out to us. And that we would, God, I pray we'd jump out the boat. I mean, if there's ever a moment to be like Peter, it's when he's trying to get closer to Jesus. Help us to be soaking wet for you, standing there beside your charcoal fire, waiting to eat some fish and bread. That's what I pray for your church. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.